Hey everyone, and welcome to the Design of Everything podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Berseth, and this is episode number 18. You know, I go through life hoping for the best and expecting the worst, because you need to be prepared if the worst does happen, but you hope for the best. Problem solving is what we all do. All of us, you know, whether you're working at a, at a job at a, at, a, at a desk that maybe is boring, how do you make it interesting enough to keep continue working? I said, well, actually, I'm designing a system to grow shiitake mushrooms, you know, undercover artificially. And they go, shawats? And no one knew what they were. Ten years later, the national consciousness of mushrooms changed that dramatically. And I was imagining that he was going to ask me to come to work for him. And I said, great, I'd love to, except for one thing. I'm not going to be a cubicle guy. I want a piece of the action. My guest this week is Bill Greenwald. Now, on top of being an all-around kind and genuine, authentic person, Bill was unbelievably fascinating to speak with because he has such a diverse range of talent. He's a mechanical engineer, a mushroom grower, a pilot, and an airport manager. But at the heart of all of those things, Bill is a problem solver. Whether it's installing a kitchen sink, helping the local water company remain operational, designing the logistics for a dynamic piece of art, or developing a groundbreaking technique for growing shiitake mushrooms, Bill's creativity comes in the form of exploring pragmatic solutions to people's problems. So this is my conversation with Bill Greenwald about the design of problem solving. So my name is Bill Greenwald, and um, I do a lot of things. Uh, from an educational perspective, uh, I'm a mechanical engineer, mm -hmm. um, son of an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, found it, I wasn't gonna be able to get into medical school, so I figured the next best machines to work on if you can't work on the human machine is regular machines. So yeah. I gravitated towards mechanical engineering, and I came out of, uh, out of that. Um, I grew up in New Haven, the New Haven, Connecticut area. <coughs> Went to the University of Vermont. Loved Vermont. Um, decided to stay. Uh, got a job at Stanley Tools, uh, which most folks know. Um, anything from, uh, from Stanley uh, you know, garage door openers to mm -hmm. Stanley hand tools to maybe Stanley magic door at hospitals. You'll see those a lot. And enabled me to stay in southern Vermont. This was um, after college? Right, or? right after okay. college, yeah. So that was back in 1980-ish. Mm -hmm. um, and I uh, hated it. It was absolutely <laughs> terrible. It was nothing like I expected it to be. It was a cubicle job. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, being the son of what amounts to an entrepreneur, you know, in the old days, you didn't work for a hospital if you were a doctor. You pretty much put up your shingle and you tried to attract uh, customers who were patients. So I guess that was more ingrained in me than I thought it was. And so... Um, on top of that, in 1980, there was a small recession. Mm -hmm. So it was a duck and cover environment in a big corporation, which I'd never experienced something like that before, where people were, had no work to do <clears throat> and were looking to just hide. Oh, uh, yeah. So, and of course, I'm Lee Senior. So they gave me the wonderful job of uh, moving a whole bunch of union jobs to a non-union shop. Uh, that Stanley was opening up in northern, more northern Vermont. It was a sawmill, so all of the wooden handle components got moved up to this sawmill, and they were all non-union <laughs> jobs. And so uh, when I first arrived at Stanley, there was a strike that was going on that was just finishing up. And uh, by the way, having to, be, having to be from Connecticut and happening that the Stanley Works headquarters was in Connecticut. They assumed I was some kind of corporate guy. <laughs> so they were jumping on my car and all. And here I'm right out of college, you know. And you people don't really know what you're doing. Yeah, I'm like, guys, I'm just a punk engineer <laughs> for God's sake. Right, right. So anyway, so I got into Stanley and 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 in that environment. And then here comes this recession. And so um, the next thing I know is they ask me to study um, all of these jobs. And all the people on the floor knew that I was taking their job. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love to do is be hands-on. And so all these people knew me by name. They, yeah. I was an engineer, but I was, I was the engineer they went to the, when there were problems because they knew I got it. You know? yeah. And as a joke, I was actually the most grieved 
engineer in the history because I always went out to try doing union work. And they would say, sure, sit down. And then they would say, okay, I'm grieving you because you're taking union jobs. <laughs> <Or> you're, you're <laughs> What's that mean, you're, grieving? A grievance is a, you know, oh, grievance, okay. a grievance. Gotcha. You know, it was a union grievance. Yeah. It was sort of a joke where I was, I had the most grievances of any of the, of the non-direct labor staff. That, <laughs> that, that, and it was all sort of in, all in fun. It really was. But when I went out to move these jobs, um, it was very gratifying that all the workers did not hold it against me. Yeah. At all. I mean, they were very helpful. They went out of their way to teach me how to do the job so I could teach the people at the new facility, even though they knew it was a non-union shop. They were not invited mm-hmm. to move uh, as often as sometimes happens, but in particular, if you're going from a union shop to a non-union shop. So here I am taking training from these guys who are about to lose their jobs. But they did it with enthusiasm, knowing that it wasn't my fault and it was going to happen anyway. And yeah. so it was, that was very gratifying. And how did that inform you and your behavior, I guess, well, moving forward? Well, it, it, it really didn't inform as much as reinforce. Um, okay. One of the things I learned very quickly, um, uh, even before I graduated from college, is if you're in a college track environment where you and all your friends and your siblings it was as a matter of course that you went to college Mm -hmm. you get a distorted view or at least i did of um that everyone else is stupid okay that didn't go to college right 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 right. and you quickly find there's a lot of very smart much smarter than you yeah people out there in the world and they just didn't have the opportunity to go to college yeah uh it's it's humbling but it's also a a really cool feeling you know so i've always respected everybody um i really never had i I don't think i've ever um uh sort of looked at someone as being lesser because of where they are and what station in life there are i always look at it as a result of opportunity okay yeah and and so that just reinforced that that feeling you know here's these great folks very bright uh i'm taking their jobs they see beyond the issues mm-hmm. and look at me as a friend and know that I've got to do my job. And so it's just another reinforcement. Um, I've met plenty of people, I'm sure we all have, that, you know, they could be um, uh, in any job you can imagine. I mean, let's, you know, sort of the classic, oh, he's the janitor. What right. turns out that he just never had the opportunity and, and extre- exceedingly bright and problem solving maybe better than I am and I'm supposed to be a problem solver as an engineer right so I I, I'm always uh, I'm always a fan of people and I'm I'm always I always respect human nature Um, never underestimate human nature and and in general human nature is good you know Mm -hmm. if you give it an opportunity so anyway what was really funny about the Stanley tools thing was that um, I moved those jobs and um, I was aware that I was going to be laid off, <laughs> and 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 so so um, when the uh, when the one of the top dogs from the division came up to tell me in this very paternal way about don't worry about a thing you're going to get another job it's right. going to be fine um, I had already uh, lined up another job but I didn't oh, let really? him, I didn't let him know yeah because there was for what it was it wasn't a golden parachute it was kind of a tinny one but for a young <laughs> engineer it was still pretty good you know yeah. ca- continued my pay for six months and stuff like that so I moved on but what I moved on to was um, working with a guy to grow shiitake mushrooms undercover um, if we were the first ones in the world natural progression from Stanley Tunnels. yeah perfect right yeah but what was what was interesting was is this guy this guy he happened to be the owner of a big gentleman's farm in Vermont from which we purchased our house okay we carved out uh, out of this 2,000 acre farm we carved out um, seven acres and this little house that was there and uh, I got to know the guy pretty well he was an affluent very young guy in his 20s uh, from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. who was exceedingly creative. Yeah. I mean, unbelievably creative. I am not creative. I solve problems. Oh, no. Why are you on the podcast? <laughs> because because my creativity is fixing people's problems. Yeah. Right? So where I get what I, you know, I call these these blue sky guys are the ones who are just off the table creative. You know, like, like wouldn't have ever thought of that. Mm-hmm. But they have no idea how to get from that idea yeah to and so my quote creativity is i don't come up with the problem i come up with the solution okay and that's one of the things i'm known for if there's anything is that i come up with solutions cheap 
Oh, okay. Right. So my little engineering company I call Greenwald Pragmatics, mm -hmm. and the motto is solutions that make sense. Okay. So you can go over the top and 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 just hammer things with by throwing money at them and bringing in all sorts of resources, or you can often, not always get someone like me, because there's lots of folks who have this, this ability, mm -hmm. to come in and solve the problem monetarily efficiently. Okay, so would you consider yourself a minimalist then, in that sense? Yeah, I, and I think th in some respects, yes. I, I look for the simplest solution, mm -hmm. um, and in that sense, maybe an engineering minimalist. Okay. <clears throat> a lot of folks, um, I, don't, I don't think, well, let's put it this way, a friend of mine you know, says that I'm, I'm cheap, and I say, no, I'm frugal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've tried to convince friends that. Yeah, as well. you know, so, but when you're, hiring, when you're hiring an engineer, you really want the frugal guy if you can. Yeah. And hopefully the uh, being frugal doesn't get in the way of getting the solution in a timely manner. But I don't like to throw money at stuff. I'd rather throw uh, sort of creative resources at it and try to come up with a solution that's inexpensive and effective. Okay. And right. so you did that with the mushrooms. Yeah, so I went, left Stanley Tools and this guy who was the owner of the farm from which we bought the house from, would come down. This is a great gig, by the way. And he knew I was an engineer. And it turns out growing shiitake mushrooms requires a lot of engineering, especially mechanical engineering, of which I am. There's really? a lot, Yeah, a lot of sterilizing of materials, a lot of bulk handling of materials, mm -hmm. you know, just, just thousands of cubic yards of sawdust, shiitake, digest wood. Oh, so instead okay. of logs on the forest floor or cutting logs and sticking them in the woods, we, we made this continuous process machine that took dry raw materials in huge you know bins, yeah. um, conveyed it into a pressurized vessel for sterilization, which is a matter of heating the stuff up and then cooling it down without mm -hmm. letting it get recontaminated, conveying that material to aseptic package you know sterile packaging machines yeah while at the same time inoculating that material with shiitake and getting this uh this hermetically sealed package that would allow the shiitake to grow while at the same time keeping microbes out wow <clears throat> that so sounds complex it, 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 <laughs> it was but it was done uh, for example there's this one packaging machine that we adapted to our use and that was pretty much you know what i did and some of the stuff that we did with that machine the manufacturer would say was impossible. Mm -hmm. Couldn't do that. Yeah. But s through simple modifications, we were able to use the machine to do what it was designed to do, but to do it in a way that was that was sterile. That yeah. Was, that was aseptic. So so that's the type of creativity that I'm talking about. You know, yeah. is, is okay. Even the manufacturer says you can't do that with that machine, but it's a very uh, relatively speaking inexpensive piece of equipment compared to what other people were using, and make it do make it do the job. And how much trial and error did it take before you... Oh, certainly lots. Yeah. I mean, do you, do, it's a great question, you know, dealing with a biological entity or element. Oh, boy. Right. Yeah. And fighting uh, to the human eye invisible foe. <laughs> right. 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 Spores and bacteria and yeast and everything else um, was, it taught me patience. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And on top of that, you know, you make this package and you don't know what the quality is until, um, well, really, till nine months later. It to, takes the mushrooms nine months. Well, to what happens is, you know, the whole process. By the time you're, by the time that package, which was in the shape of a large sausage, mm -hmm. we called them logs because in nature the shiitake grows on logs. Mm -hmm. So in order to get the full potential of that log, it was a nine-month process. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, you, un unlike typical engineering where you tweak a knob and 10 seconds later or 10, you know, thousands of a second later, you know the result. Yeah. Here you would tweak a knob and then you'd wait nine months. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, it's an, a per, it's a, it was a nonstop 24-hour-a-day process six days a week. So you're constantly making these logs. But to, if you said to me, Bill, how did that one come out? The wait time was nine months. And if it was a contamination problem, the wait time was at least a couple of weeks. Okay, yeah. So even that was was. Oh, so you term. could tell before nine months if it had gotten contaminated, essentially. Yep, yep. As a matter of fact, um, if the week of production went bad, you'd, you'd go away patting yourself on the back about what a great week you had, and you'd come in on Monday, and it would smell like a brewery because <laughs> you got some wild brewer's yeast had gotten <laughs> right. into these logs, and the whole place reeked of, of like just rotten beer yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know or or you know or you'd get some other other material other fungus in there 
um, and they'd all be bright green instead of dark okay. brown, you know, because you guys have all seen bread mold, you know, that deep, mm-hmm. rich, bright green. Um, that would all be growing in there. And you never knew it. You're you know, w- working away 24 hours a day. You got operators, three operators doing the best they can. And everything runs perfectly smoothly, let's say, as a strange example, because it rarely did. Mm-hmm. And God, the whole thing would be junk. And then you had to throw it all away. And w- what gave you the confidence that, yes, I can... I can be in the shiitake Kyle. business. Well, cause you know it's a really interesting question. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of uh, go a little bit off on a tangent from sure. that exact question, and that is, um, how do we know this would work? This right. whole huge extent. This machine um, filled a, a room that was two two levels at five thousand square feet a level. So wow. it basically filled one above the other. It was a two built two story building. Um, you know, how would you know that you could ever have it? work ever and the key is once it worked once mm-hmm. then you knew it could work again but believe me we didn't know yeah i mean we built this huge machine turned it on took forever to get it simply to function mechanically you know yeah. to convey <laughs> yeah. everything where you want I mean, and and then it would be all contaminated right you know? and so the real question was how did you know and the theory and i use that word in quotes because it was just it was just clear thinking. I mean, don't, don't, don't think, you know, any sort of like fancy, you know, relativistic physics theory. We're talking about the theories were sound Mm -hmm. and straightforward with no proof that they would work. But as soon as you did it once, then you knew. Yeah. So what did we do that time? Right. That worked. So were you taking extensive notes? Oh my God. Yeah. There's a, there's a, uh, a woman who is uh, still local as a matter of fact. Um, and she is a biologist, um, and you can edit this out, but her name is Audrey Werner, mm-hmm. if you want. Um, but uh, she worked very hard with me, and, and she was also a University of Vermont graduate. Okay. And, and she's, she's an incredible lady because unlike Bill, who can solve one problem at a time, <laughs> yeah. all right, and I'll do those in succession, she would have more balls in the air than a professional juggler, and all of them meticulously... Uh, you know, in keeping with her notes and what the next steps were and stuff. So mm. I relied heavily on her yeah. to get this job done. So she, we'd have all kinds of experiments running. All that data would be collated in the early days of, of Excel, yeah. you know, because uh, this was back in the 80s. Right. I remember the first PC came out in 1980, <laughs> right. you know? So, I mean, we had 10 megabytes. It was a huge hard drive. <laughs> um, but it, the point is, is that you need somebody like that. Yeah. He's a meticulous scientist who can keep all that data so that you could learn something. Because if mm-hmm. you didn't keep data, you don't learn anything. Yeah, you're just shooting in the dark. Right, every single time. Yeah. And you're doomed to repeat your same experiments because six months later you can't remember what you did. Mm-hmm. So Audrey was amazing that way. She would keep um, just all of these meticulous notes, both in the computer and just, you know, by hand. Yeah. And through that we learned a lot. Um, sadly, what eventually happened, happened to the mushroom business was that we um we got very good at it, relatively speaking. Um, to give some perspective to your, to the people listening to this, we produced um about ten thousand pounds a week of shiitake. That sounds mushrooms. like a lot. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it sounds huge, right, Kyle? <laughs> I mean, mushrooms are pretty light. Yeah. Well, check this out. A typical white button mushroom farm, the ones that we were all familiar with before varieties of mushrooms were available in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. A typical, just good size, not huge, white button mushroom farm would produce 750,000 pounds a Oh, my goodness. Yeah, 24 hours a day, tractor, trailer trucks, refrigerated trucks coming and going to, you know, ship that product around. Yeah. So people go, holy caboli, 10,000 pounds. I'm like, yeah, but let me put that into some right, perspective for right. you. You know, and so that gets people to understand. And they were, they were especially mushroom. What's great, though. Here's another anecdote that cracks me up. So here I am, you know, the son of a doctor, blah, 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 down in New Haven, Connecticut area. And um, <laughs> go to the go to mom and dad's country club for a, uh, a party. Yeah. And everyone say, oh, Billy, so what are you doing? I said, well, actually, I'm devi- designing a system to grow shiitake mushrooms, you know, undercover artificially. And they go, shawats? Right. And no one knew what they were. Ten years later, people run up to me, these friends of my folks, hey, how are the shiitake going? They're excellent. Yeah. So in 10 years, the national consciousness of mushrooms changed that dramatically. You know, back then, no one thought there was an edible mushroom besides the white button mushroom. Oh, okay. Everything else was a toadstool and was poisonous. Right. In the U.S., and these numbers are, w- from what I remember from way back then, but 
per capita, we consumed like a three quarters of a pound of mushrooms. Mm-hmm. In Canada, maybe it was twice that. In, in uh, Europe, it was maybe five times that. And in Asia, they consume 20 pounds per capita or more. Yeah. And now the U.S. is catching up on all these wonderful varieties of mushrooms in addition to shiitake mushrooms. Yeah. So it's a really cool to watch that transition. I went from sort of no competition to lots of competition. Yeah. Um, but that has to feel <coughs> pretty validating, too. Yeah, it is. I, it I, is. I, I mean, and let's, but remember, that was the guy who started it. That was that blue sky guy, that 60,000-foot yeah. guy, who came up with the idea of, hey, why do we only have one mushroom available readily in this country? Mm-hmm. And it was a great observation. Yeah. You know, I didn't make that observation. He did. Then it was, Bill, how do we do this? And that's where sort of I come in to, to help out. Coincidentally, I, I had a strong biology background. Oh, okay. And to tell you how nerdy people can be, um, I loved microbiology. Well, what a coincidence, right? Yeah. So here's <laughs> yeah. a guy... Here's a guy who at, at age 10 or 11 built his own incubator and used to make Petri dishes and culture bacteria and really? for fun. Yeah. yeah just because it was so weird. So I you know, take, a, <laughs> take a cardboard box, put a 75-watt light bulb in it as a heating element, put in a little thermostat to set it at you know, 70 degrees or 80 mm-hmm. degrees, whatever you're trying to grow. And then my father had his, and I still have it, his Bosch and Loam single eyepiece monocular microscope that yeah. he used in medical school. He still had it, and he taught me how to use it. And so I'm doing that stuff at age 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old for fun. Right, right. And now this guy comes to me and asks, and this is the gig I was telling you about before that I got distracted. He would come down and say, hey, Bill, I'll take you out to dinner, you and Kathy, your wife, if you'll give me some advice on how to build this equipment that he needed to build okay and eventually he offered me a job and i told him and by the way so think about this you're drinking great wine eating at the best gourmet restaurants in the area giving advice you have no responsibility for (laughs) the price is right (laughs) oh my god right how much fun was that well then and then i saw that he really needed me and i was imagining that he was going to ask me to come to work for him and I said, great, I'd love to, except for one thing. I'm not going to be a cubicle guy. I want a piece of the action. Mm-hmm. I refuse to work anywhere ever again. So he said, fine, I'll give you 20% of the business in return for, you know, on the come, as they say. So I had to, I, I had to work a certain number of years um, and hit some benchmarks to earn, earn that money. Sure. Which I was totally psyched about. So here comes his consulting biologist from Penn State. And he interviews me, and I'd known the guy because I was working with him, you know, before I came to work for the company. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he's like, Bill, this is weird. He goes, picture it. So you buy this house next to this guy, and you are a mechanical engineer, which is exactly what we need, who has a strong background in biology with a subspecialty in microbiology. Small world. I mean, is that bizarre, yeah. Kyle? I would think, I mean, how, I, don't know any, I don't know any of my engineering friends who loved biology as much as I did. Right. You know, so that was a weird, you know, small world fate type of thing. Yeah. So what happened to the mushroom business in the end, just to sum that up, is um, the, the, the guy who started it sadly crashed his plane uh, and, and died um, in, a, in a tragic accident. I bought the company from um, his estate, which was his family. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, after 20 years of doing that, we couldn't grow them anymore. There was some kind of biological fade, I'm calling it. Yep, my biologist friend and I worked as hard as we could, but the writing truly was on the wall, watching cash decrease, uh, the amount of product we grew decreased, Mm -hmm. and the quality of that product inverted we used to grow mostly really good stuff with some not as nice stuff yeah and it inverted we were growing mostly not so nice stuff with far less of the premium stuff and the gross volumes were dropping yeah and so i thought we were all done and so i uh laid everybody off bit by bit you know Mm -hmm. very sad thing i got everybody jobs which was really cool i was very proud of that yeah and was about to close the doors And I'm talking to my customers about the inevitability of this, who they were relying on us. Mm -hmm. And this was a huge uh, revelation to me. They said, well, Bill, if you can't grow them, can you get the same quality for us as long as it's in a Delph tree? One word, that was our brand name, still is. Mm -hmm. It's a trademarked name, trademarked, um, you know, uh, a logo and stuff that we did. 
as long as it's Delft Tree quality, we want your stuff. Oh, okay. And I went, you're kidding me. Yeah. Because <laughs> I thought it was because we grew them that they wanted our product. Right. It wasn't. They wanted our quality and our customer service. It's a huge shock. Uh, I mean, okay. it's like, I mean, <laughs> you're, like, you're like, what have I been doing this whole yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, really? You know, so um, it was an amazing experience. So I then started calling my competitors down in primarily Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And it was like hearing the deliverance banjo music in the background because <laughs> I would call up somebody and they would say, I know who the fuck you are. You know, you're that oh, Delftree really? guy and there's no way we're selling to you because you're the one who made the prices go down. I'm like, what are you talking about? That was, none of us wanted them to go down, but there was too much of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, and we also know what you're doing. I said, really? Well, what is that? Well, you are increasing your production capability because that big farm went out of business. You're going to pick up all their customers and you're just buying to fill the void until you can grow more and then we're right back in the competition again. Uh, and I would say, no, it's not true. I'll send you pictures. I'm tearing apart the facility. No, no, we already know what you're doing. Yeah. Okay, fine. I call the next guy. Yeah, well, we know who the fuck you are. And it <laughs> went on and on. My uncle told me that you were going to be calling. Or my cousin told me. I was like, you know, and I'm hearing this deliverance banjo music in the back. They're all cousins and nephews and God knows what, right? So finally, after like, you know, five calls a day and my ears bleeding from the, you know, what I was called. Mm -hmm. I right? never had any people yell at me that I never knew before, right? I finally called this guy. And he says, yeah, I know who the hell you are. I'm like, here we go again. He goes, but I don't care. I said, really? He goes, no. He goes, I'm in business to sell mushrooms. If your money's good, I'm selling. Yeah. The heck with all my, my uncles and cousins. So. so we developed this wonderful relationship um, with this farm and one other. So we partnered. And now we get s the best you can buy. And we deliver them within 24 hours of them being harvested mm. to all of our customers who are still with us in the Connecticut and Boston area. Yeah. And no one can do what we do. It's very hard. Our prices are at a higher level, but no one gets mushrooms that are within 24 hours of being harvested. Yeah. So they're super fresh. Yeah. So the business just changed. It went from 30 people desperately trying to grow product in a world where we couldn't do them as well to one and a quarter people plus myself pretty much being a distributor mm -hmm. but with two super premium farms that do an incredible job of producing frankly the same quality that <clears throat> we used to do except they also grow a wide variety of specialty mushrooms yeah so now we sell far beyond just shiitake oh, okay it sounds like you went right back to minimalism there yeah you got it <laughs> and i love it you had this problem and yeah you no, got I mean, rid of the hardest part and, but once again th who did th my customers were the one who told me right. what the problem was right it never even occurred to me to see if i couldn't do that yeah they said we just want your stuff can you fix that problem yeah and i said well i guess so and th so that was not engineering of course that was going out and seeing if you could find people who would sell to you sure sure but it worked and so now that's that's the business it's tro totally metamorphosed into an entirely different thing yet the delft tree brand name is still there mm -hmm. and you know very proudly still represents the best you can get yeah you know because that's how we buy them and you know my drivers my primarily the primary driver watches the quality when they go to pick them up in Pennsylvania, make sure that they're high quality and make sure our customers get them in a timely fashion in and are of the quality that Delft Tree stands for. Yeah. Now, would you say uh, just when you were making all these calls, I've talked to a lot of creative people and I'd say one of the most important things that I've run across is persistence. Uh -huh. And are you just a naturally persistent person? Do you, do you not care about any rejection whatsoever or is your attitude just plow ahead? No, it's a good, I, I hate rejection. But, <laughs> right. you know, the deal is, is that if you've got an asset that you've worked that hard on and you didn't even know you had developed it, what it brand recognition. I mean, mm -hmm. That's what we were developing that, you know, here I was in this little town of North Adams, Massachusetts. You know, our markets were New York City. Yeah. Um, the oh, Connecticut okay. area. I'm isolated, right? All I've got is my blinders on trying to keep production up and trying to keep it from going where it did mm -hmm. without really, I, I had no way of knowing what the marketplace was like because if I went to these people, they would know who I, who I was. Yeah. And, and so when that first customer said, Bill, we just want your quality, that, that was amazing. 
I realized then that we had an asset. I didn't think we had an asset. I thought the fact that we couldn't grow them anymore meant the business was over. Right. That's right? so remarkable. Yeah. Uh, Kyle, it was crazy. I mean, <laughs> I could have fought, you could have pushed me over with a feather. I just didn't know it. Yeah. And so once I found out that we had this asset <clears throat> of the Delft Tree, you know, brand name representation of quality, well, then it was a matter of just gritting your teeth and doing it and, and, about the perseverance thing, yes, when it comes to solving problems mechanically or, let's say, biologically, mm-hmm. you, know, I, you know, give me the blinders. Let me work on that one facet of the problem, and I love being persistent. That's okay. how I've always been. But the getting someone to sell me product actually falls back on another anecdote, and I love this mm-hmm. one. It's a very good friend of mine, um, Harvard grad. And he tells me the story about he, how he and his buddy, and I, I am not a fan of liberal arts. I'm a, okay. I'm a, I mean, I used to, I used, you know, you've heard the STEM stuff, you know, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Oh, okay, yeah. I've been a STEM proponent for years. Like, look, all that other stuff is great, but this world lives on technology now. You mm-hmm. know, everything about what we do is technology. You can't trade stocks without the computers. You can't have medicine without the science. We can't be doing a podcast without the engineers who design the computer and the microphones. Right. It's all based on science, tech, and I've been doing this. I've been talking about this forever since I, even before I went to college and you know, all the liberal arts school guys will tell you, no, you got to have this background and then you can go get something that's worthwhile. Okay. <laughs> so, so, and I know people are arguing with that, but that's how I feel. Right. Ah, I would argue that, yeah. uh, yes, you can have all this technology, but it's got to be enjoyable to use and, and, uh, it should look nice. And yeah. And that's, and that's true, but you can't, you know, words, until you have it, you can't do those things to it. Right. But, but still, it's a good argument. It's a fun argument to have. Yeah. Um, anyway, so here's my friend getting his Harvard degree, right? Mm-hmm. And he In tells what? I don't even remember oh, something okay. like sociology or Not something important. totally worthless, yeah. you know? <laughs> And anyway, but he's driving along with a friend, um, another grad, and they're like, yeah, we're graduating. Holy crap. What are we going to do for a living? We don't have any skills. We got a (laughs) Harvard degree in a liberal arts line of of, of education and nothing marketable. What are we going to do? And his father had been an insurance guy, very successful one. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I guess I can become an insurance agent. Um, But... (laughs) After all that. Yeah, but before that, I got to realize that I need to sell stuff. Sales is where it's going to be. I'm going to sell insurance. And all you have to do, and this is back to your question, to be a spectacular salesman is have persistence and perseverance and not at all be, be concerned about people telling you no. Yeah. And if you don't care that people tell you no, you can be a great salesperson, <laughs> right. right? So I thought to myself, all right, Chris would be telling me, Bill, what do you care about rejection? Just call the next guy. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I've got a lot of friends like that, by the way, that have, have told me these little, and they are truly pearls of wisdom. And I've mm-hmm. got a whole slew of them. Whenever I find uh, someone that I respect, I mean, I don't even like them, but that I respect, they will say certain things that you go, wow. You right. Know? That is salient. That's something that really is something that can guide your life. So I hated calling those people and mm-hmm. being yelled at and being told no. Yeah. But I always remember Chris going, anyone can be a great salesman as long as they don't care about being told no and they're persistent. Mm-hmm. So over a couple of weeks, I got bloodied over <laughs> <Right>. and over <laughs> and over. But I just remembered, look, you know, you just got to be persistent and who cares if they say no? And after getting that rejection so many times, did you ever start to enjoy it? God, no. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I am not a, any kind of a masochist. I'm not calling people up and having them say no to me. But I did, I did, I did get a little less uh, sensitive to it. Yeah. I still hate it. I mean, yeah. I, you know, it's like you do the best you can. You're as sincere as you can be. I'm a very transparent person. A lot of people say too transparent to even be in business because I like dealing with people on a very even level, transparent playing field. You're not angling for... I mean, really, no. I mean, I can remember the last time I sold an old used car that I'd used up. Mm -hmm. It happened to look really good. 
Yeah. It was an old 89 Honda Accord that, believe me, a friend had given me that was broken that I fixed, and I used it for 150,000 miles. Mm-hmm. And the thing was a rot bag. It was just rotting apart. Right. But it looked kind of good. And I had done some really crude uh, body work on it just so it didn't look <laughs> terrible. And I Wait, said... That, you just <clears throat> said it looked kind of good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it did. It looked good, but it was only because I did this Cobb Job Auto repair to it, you know? <laughs> right. and, I, and then I told people, I said, look, they would call me. I put it on Craigslist, right? And the pictures, you know, pictures can make things look much better than yeah. they are. And I said, 500 bucks for a Honda Accord. Runs great. It's rotting apart, you know? So someone called up and said, he'd take it. I said, great. Wait till you see it. I need to point out all the flaws because the there's rot. a lot of them. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah. rot. I think it's got mechanical issues. I'll tell you about it. I mean, it runs great, but I think there's some things going. And he's like, great. I'll take it. Five minutes later, I get a call. Well, I'm sorry. I've told this guy he can take it. I'll give you $1,000. I said, no. You, this car's not worth a thousand dollars. It's ba- maybe worth five hundred dollars. I'll give you fifteen hundred. No, just give me your name. And I'll rec- if this guy doesn't want it, I'll call you. Yeah. Twenty minutes later, another guy's. I'll give you two thousand dollars for it. I like, no, it just looks better than it is. You guys don't want this car for more than five hundred bucks. You know, it just it just went <laughs> you on. You are a terrible business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I am. I want people to buy the value that they are. I just sell, sold some stuff on eBay, right? Mm-hmm. Two of the three of them turned out to be defective. Guy call, guy sends me back, wants a refund, and, and he'll send, send me the ones back. I said, no, throw them away. How much of a refund do you want? I'm sorry. I didn't know that they were broken. They yeah. were brand new. I guess they aged in place. They were electronic devices that can actually get old just to being chronologically old. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. I apologize. You know, would it, tell me what you want to do. I'll do it because that really yeah. is terrible, you know? Yeah, and they're <laughs> useless to me yeah, too. Yeah, so throw them away. They're junk for everybody. Right. You know? so, so anyway, so, so that's, that's, you know, the way I think I've always been is is and I enjoy that. I've never I've never sold anything to anybody that I feel I didn't really tell them. And that can that comes to our product. That goes to my services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a call from a guy to fix this big control system and he says, Can you fix it? And I said, I don't know. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll go down and look at it. I'm not gonna charge you. But if I think I can be productive at doing this, I'll start charging you when I think I'm actually providing value yeah otherwise it's not your job to educate me about this system so mm-hmm. that's that's how i've always worked it's always worked out you know, yeah it's, it's always worked out and i've never burned a bridge that i know of and certainly never burned one on purpose because mm-hmm. it's just not worth it okay now it sounds like i would say you know you're an engineer you're a mushroom farmer mm-hmm. you've got your problem solving business mm-hmm. now i would say a lot of people focus on one specialty. Right. What is the what's the through line here? I, I think for me it's it's um it really just goes and a lot of people talk about, you know, problem solving, but certain types of problems I I, I get a kick out of. Okay. <laughs> and if you can if you can earn a living solving those problems, but I do it recreationally as well. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, you know, I uh an example that I that I give um is I'm always amazed when airline captains, and I know a couple of them from my, you know, the flying, the recreational flying that I told you that I do. So they work flying the Airbus around in circles, and then the first thing they want to do when they get home is jump into their little airplane and go flying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So so for me, um, I guess I shouldn't be as amazed at that as I am, because for me, at work, I solve problems like all business people do. but then recreationally, I solve problems, but they're a totally different sort of problem in 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 general. Yeah, you know, managerial problems are are a headache. Um, I think everyone will agree that if not the hardest, one of the hardest is personnel issues, and so those are it's problem solving. It's managing the problem, trying to solve it. But recreationally, I don't ever do that stuff. You know, it's it's Rec- some get you your don't ha- recreationally. Yeah, <laughs> like like go. You know, like tell, like for example, you know, my my wife uh, used to manage a bunch of teachers. Yeah, and she'd come home whining about personnel problems, and I'd say I don't want to hear it, and she'd say what through the tears. I'm like no through the tears. Right? I'd say you come back to me, you tell me about these terrible problems, and then tell me what you tried to do to fix them. Mm-hmm. I'll listen all day long. I don't care if you fail miserably. Tell me the fun part. Yeah. Tell me the part about solution. Tell me the part about trying to come up with something that fixed it. Yeah. And even if it doesn't work at all, that's the part that's interesting to me. And that's right. what So having people whine about their problems, I, I glaze over. Having them whine about their problems and then what they tried to do to fix it, 
is is what it's all about to me. So yeah, so problem solving is what we all do, mm-hmm. all of us. You know, whether you're working at a at a job at a at a at a desk that maybe is boring, how do you make it interesting enough to keep continue working? For me, the pass through, if you will, is that it's all about problem solving. And for work, I do certain types of problem solving that maybe I don't do recreationally. Oh, there is a lot of overlap, of course. But, okay, but, but that's that's what it's all about. But I think all of us don't we all do that? I think life is just one problem you after it, another. Kyle. You got it. Yeah, yeah. So, but and it's. I think it's taking the challenge of those. That's the fun part. Right. And laughing at yourself when you screw up, if you can. Yeah. <laughs> you know, God when you're knows. not standing next to the client. Yeah. God, God knows, I do a lot of laughing. <laughs> you know. All right. So, what else do we got? Well, so so with your business, what's the spectrum of the problems that are coming your way? Oh my God! When people ask me, "What do I do?" Yeah, right. It, it, it's actually really—it's really a fun answer, and I use the same example. Um, I have a great uh, friend who's an, who's an accountant who you know works with me on the books and stuff. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't like tradespeople in his house, so if he needs a sink installed, I'll go install a sink. Okay, he pays my engineering rate, right? I yeah. figured out I happen to be pretty good at that stuff, so I do it. So there's one extreme. Okay, another extreme is we have um, uh, Mass Mocha, this amazing museum of contemporary art here in North Adams in a mm-hmm. two million square foot old mill complex. Yeah. Um, and there's dynamic art associated with with modern art, and so I actually solve I actually solve uh, issues for those guys. I get calls not all the time, but when they get dynamic art. I mean, the first one in particular that I remember was, and I can't describe to you the entire installation because it's it was crazy. But there was like a four ton rock suspended by a cable that was spinning slowly like a second hand inside an enclosure Yeah, that had a four-inch hole bored horizontally through the rock that had a light bulb in the hole. So as the rock slowly spun around, and you can only view this from one angle, you'd get kind of flashed in the eyes like a lighthouse. Okay, yeah. And the problem was that the rock would spin, but the power wasn't getting to the light. And so the director, who knows my, you know, my background, called me up, it's sort of almost in desperation because you know how these things are. It's a nightmare to get them installed and they have an opening coming up. And right. That damn light bulb's <laughs> and that not light flashing. Bulb. Right. <laughs> so that's how I started doing that type of work, you know, where yeah. I get these calls. And then they found out that, oh, yeah, I'm actually good at fixing things like fork trucks and, and boom lifts for installations and stuff. So mm-hmm. next thing I know, I'm sort of the go-to guy for that. So there's another kind of range of putting in the kitchen sink to yeah. you know, helping. Oh, that's a huge range. Yeah, but I'm not done because then <laughs> a local municipality called uh, their, their potable water well pump control system. You know, so where you get your drinking water from mm-hmm. had been designed and built by a very reputable engineering firm um, about, uh, well, now it's about uh, 17 years ago, <coughs> maybe a little longer than that. And the pumps weren't running. And the engineering firm couldn't figure out how to fix it and the electrical subcontractor couldn't figure out how to fix it and so you know sort of in desperation um the water department director who's a friend of mine said bill you think you can fix this and that was the classic example of where i said i have no idea right (laughs) so i went down there and looked at it and it was a matter of perseverance because this problem was intermittent and followed no real pattern okay but yeah so i i looked at that control equipment. And once again, th- this stuff is not rocket science. It takes a broad background and a lot of different um, uh, parts of engineering mm-hmm. um, to understand how this stuff works. God knows I'm no uh, genius about this or expert, but I have the patience and perseverance to go through it and enough baseline knowledge to sort of hope to figure the damn yeah. thing out. And lo and behold, it turned out that we did figure it out and the failure was hysterical. It was... It was um, two magnetic devices that just never fail, you know, these generic sort of things. Yeah. And they were failing intermittently, and they were both failing. Both the, the, the two wells run, you know, run not, they, they act as redundancies, but they're the same. They, they, okay. they work between well one, then well two, then yeah. well two, then well one. And both of the devices in both of the wells were both failing intermittently. Oh, wow. So it took a while to figure out, but, you know, there's another example of the type of client, you know, right. that I have. And I've done management consulting for people who are struggling with those personnel issues or whatever. So, so oh, wow. yeah. But um, and and the, by the way, the way those things and don't. It's very regional. It's right here in this area. It's just yeah. people word of mouth. People who know what I bring to the table. And you know, now for example, 
um, I am I volunteer as the airport manager here at the North Adams Airport, North mm-hmm. Adams, Mass. Um, sort of a similar kind of story where my office is here at the airport, and I told the city, hey, you need a manager. Typically, the manager at a lot of little airports like this is just a young kid who is, you know, you know, passing through, maybe a young pilot getting his hours to eventually okay. become a crew. And this airport has never had a, a, an engineer as their manager. So I brought a lot to the table, and I do it for fun. It's really, really enjoyable, the people you talk to and, yeah. and that sort of thing. So and how w- how's your approach to running an airport different from, say, a pilot's, do you um, think? I think that – well, for, so running this little airport, you know, is, is a matter of interacting with the public. My phone number, my, my personal cell phone is actually published by the FAA mm-hmm. as the contact person for the airport. Uh, okay. So it's everything from complaints to um, – to uh, drone pilots, you know, if you fly a drone within five miles of an airport, you have to talk to s- someone at the airport who's in charge of the airport to get permission to fly that drone. Mm-hmm. Um, to dealing with the engineering companies that worked on all of the rebuilding of the airport. So to me, it's just truly recreational. Yeah. Some of it's trying, you know, when you get noise complaints or operations complaints or whatever, or any number of complaints that a public uh, service provider like an airport has, those are sort of hard. But in general, it's just been hysterically good fun yeah <laughs> and the fact that i became a pilot you know made it made it just a neat thing to have my airplane here but also be the manager of the airport a whole new world i'd never experienced before right you okay know? yeah so that's been that's been enjoyable too yeah yeah i think uh it's interesting seeing how your personality i would say it's not typical of an engineer i think engineers are more uh, known for being buttoned up Right, very right, right. straight laced. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily great in the. Yeah. You seem like you'd go into a room and and want to talk to everyone. Yeah, no, actually, I sort of envy you on the stand up comic thing because I think that's <laughs> okay. some of the most fun you can have. To, mm-hmm. For example, um, no, I, I um, I really enjoy working with people who are willing to be worked with. You know what I mean by that? I mean, like you know, some people are just have truly a bad attitude. Yeah, and, and you, it's it must be terrible going through life being that way because <laughs> yeah. it's much more fun to try to look on the bright side you know i go through life hoping for the best and expecting the worst okay because you need to be prepared if the worst does happen yeah you know but you hope for the best and most <laughs> of the time it works out that way but sometimes you had to be prepared for the worst um yeah engineers there's in in my in my whole career so i'm 60 now Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm 18, but I'm 60. That's great. Yeah, and and uh, no, not physically. God no. <laughs> I'm just as immature as I was when I was 18, right? So anyway, um, uh, in all that time, I've met only one true engineer, the way I would want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, what I am not good at is the go to a whiteboard or a, you know in the old days a blackboard or a computer and do hardcore engineering derivation, you know, design equations. That's not my forte. Okay. My forte is hands-on. Yeah. I love the hands-on stuff and I've learned a lot, you know, know, the old, the old, the old jack of all trades, master of none is truly what I picture myself as when it comes to an an engineer. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I know a little civil, I know a little mechanical, I know a little electrical. I've been exposed to all kinds of control issues. I mean, on and on and on. Um, then you get the other extreme, the guy you I think that you're more picturing, the guy that, you know, goes to a desk and derives equations and, and you know right. you know, sort of hardcore engineering like that. Um, I've met one guy who was absolutely hands on and could also go to the board and derive an equation for any any motion, any force that you would oh, want wow. to do. Yeah. One guy. I've been exposed to engineers all my life. Right. So, and that guy had a great sense of humor, great personality. It was fun to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Um, so the others do. There, I think there's that. There's that sort of. It's not really a rip, but there is that kind of dividing line that you perceive. That I think there's the white, you know, white uh, collar guys yeah. uh, with the pocket protectors, um, which are less there now because <laughs> right. we do more stuff on computers, right, right. than we used to. But you know, and the little stainless steel ruler called a scale sitting in their pocket sure. and then you get you know the far extreme the sort of the the just the real field engineers out there just overseeing stuff and trying to get things installed or built or whatever and then i'm sort of really in the middle or towards that end of the hands-on guy you know what i mean I, yeah I'm, I'm not the super technical guy but i have enough exposure and understanding of that stuff to to follow along and understand what needs to be built so um yeah you'll get engineers that are dry and tedious and you'll get guys who 
are more along my side of right. really getting that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. you know? One of my one of my clients said to me the other day, he goes, I don't think they're making engineers like you anymore, Bill, that have the hands on. <clears throat> they 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 are they live in computers. They don't get out there in the in the quote unquote real world. They don't love to go out on the floor where things are being built. Of course, in this country, we do more, less and less of that. Right. But it's it's all more about you know being on the machine. Either you know a lot of code writing these days. You know, yeah. I always sort of find the term computer engineer when it comes to guys writing code as a little bit of a misnomer. Um, but but because engineering to me is more of a uh, of, of a physical product than a than a um, an esoteric or intellectual product. Okay. Um, but th- I think there are more and more of those people who live in the machine and don't really get out there and, and yeah. see what they're building. Cool. Well, that uh, that pretty much covers all the notes I had and Good. more. Yep. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that I you know we I, didn't I, cover that would yeah, be I mean, interesting. Yeah, I, to I talk think about. I think I think that I think that what I'd like to, to have people take away from this is you can be a little bit of the guy that you, Kyle, were picturing as an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you can also be out there with people and, and interacting in the real world and, and making the best of it and trying to always look on that positive spin. Right? Yeah. Because it's too much fun. I mean, I'd much rather go see you doing your routine and stuff than sit around and mope, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> when, I'm really, when I'm really sick, I go to work because I'd hate to be home feeling miserable yeah right it's much yeah. more fun to get out there and do something and try to pass the time you mm-hmm. know yeah. so uh, i'm looking forward to seeing some of these other uh, hearing some of these other podcasts now that i know they exist and stuff <laughs> and getting a sense for what's going on and i'm also looking forward to those links you're going to send me of some of your stand-up work for sure sounds like it's gonna be a blast cool well thanks for doing the podcast oh i love it kyle it's really good All right, that was Bill Greenwald, and that is the podcast. Thank you guys for listening. If you want to find out more things about the design of everything, you can head over to the Facebook page, The Design of Everything, on Facebook. And if you want to find out more about me, you can go to kylebersuth.com. You can watch some of those links Bill was talking about, see some of the stand-up, some of my sketches. You can also follow me on all the social media sites, at Kyle Berseth. And I just want to thank everybody that's been tuning in and telling everyone, telling their friends about the podcast. It's been really helpful and a real thrill to see it grow every single week. I just got back from the East Coast where I was touring around talking to tons of different fascinating people just like Bill. If you didn't hear my episode last week, I talked to a shoe designer at New Balance. And the week before that, I talked to a housing administrator in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So be sure to check out those previous episodes. And we got more great episodes coming at you in the upcoming weeks. So thank you all for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe and continue telling your friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.